Welcome to the Ultimate Tournament of Everything, a bracket-style show where we compare everything that ever was against everything that ever could be. Absolutely correct. This is a show truly for all seasons, but especially for this season four. What we do here is we go about carving throughout the rest of the year individual stamps that we're going to put on an infinite amount of leaves. We have an infinite amount of stamps. Each one of them is one for each element of infinity. We stamp the leaves, we stack them in a single file pile, and then we climb up the largest uh, high dive that has ever existed and we fall upon this large stack of stamped leaves which one will stop our progress towards the hard earth well that will be the selection moving on to the next round of the so it is fall and I've had to rake leaves and I don't know if I'd want to put them in a single file pile after we stamped, uh, stamped everyone individually with names of random things. Instead, can we do something easier? Well, I've, I've wasted a lot of time this year, but um, yeah, let's, let's go with easy, Rob. Okay, great. Why don't we instead pick random pages off Wikipedia using this handy dandy link generator I found? All right, uh, yeah, that sounds agreeable. Uh, let's do so right now and jump in to round one. Round, 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 round. In round one, we have Diaspiros Sumatrana against Estadio Francisco Montaner. Okay, yes, a very exciting way to kick off tonight. Two things standing tall. Uh, Diaspiro Sumatrana. We have a tree uh, going up against Estadio Francisco Montaner, uh, who appears to be a multi-use stadium in Ponce, Puerto Rico. Diaspiro Sumatrana is a tree in the family Ibanescae. It's a word I can't pronounce. But the tree grows to about 100 feet tall, bears up to three flowers, and fruits up to an inch long. The tree is named for Sumatra. That's nice. Ah, yes. Uh, I mostly know that from coffee blends. Um, but let's talk about this tree here. Uh, its inflorescences uh, bear up to three flowers, and uh, the fruits are ellipsoid or uh oblong up to one inch long it is a tropical lowland rainforest tree found from indochina to malaysia and it looks like its habitat is lowland mixed dipterocarp forests i wonder what that means it's a family of 16 genera and about 695 known species of mainly tropical lowland rainforest trees well, that's that's you know that's the entire article. So that is that is all we know about this tree. But what do we know about Estadio Francisco Montaner? Ah, uh, well, we know that it is the genuine article, as we said, multi-use stadium used for multiple things, uh, including being home to the Leones de Ponce team of the Puerto Rico Baseball League, the LBPPR, and the FC Leones of the Puerto Rico Soccer League. Stadium has a capacity of 1,600 seats. Construction of the stadium began in 1947, and it opened October 15, 1949. Montaner has the distinction of being the first stadium in Puerto Rico that installed an artificial surface field. Yeah, and uh, it's you know it's got a friend next door. Its stadium lies next to the Juan Panchin Vicens Auditorium. And this is where the Ponce Lions uh, play basketball, uh, holding all of their games there. Uh, this stadium, though, in question, the Estado Francisco Montaner, was named to honor Francisco Paquito Montaner, uh, one of the greatest Puerto Rican pitchers of all time. And there are many, and that's saying something. So many. And have you seen the logo for this basketball team? I have not. That it is, it is very good. It is very good. So while baseball had been practiced in the city prior to the stadium, baseball in Ponce then started in earnest upon the arrival of Americans to the island after the Spanish-American War of 1898. And the first non-professional baseball leagues played at the 
Campo Atletico Charles H. Terry. However, after the formation of the Liga de Baseball Semiprofessional de Puerto Rico, of course, in English, the Puerto Rican Semiprofessional Baseball League, the sport had matured enough that it became necessary to plan on building a new stadium. And to this day, I think baseball very, very popular in Puerto Rico. Absolutely. Uh, to the degree that this need was further exacerbated on the 14th of September 1941, when the league became a professional level league. They were pros at this point, and construction of the stadium began in 1947. It opened two years later on October 15th. 19th, 1949, and in addition to baseball, the stadium had other uses. In particular, it was used uh, for basketball games, and uh, they played on a ba converted basketball court that they stowed away when the basketball games were over. Well, that's nice. It'd kind of be hard to play soccer or baseball around it. The stadium is even used during winter training for many major league baseball players, and in its early days, in particular, the stadium was used as his training stadium for the New York Yankees. Wow. Uh, basically just a, a home for champions and uh, those who aspire to be so. Uh, the... PRPBL's regular playing season does run from November through January, uh, and uh, from February to August, the venue is transformed into a track and field stadium, and it also form, uh, serves as a venue for other activities, such as uh, host of the Mustang Auto Daredevils. You know what they say, how about them Yankees, and how about this baseball stadium? If I had to pick, I think I'd want to turn that tree into a bat to use at this stadium. Yeah, it uh, sounds like I, we don't have any indication of the, you know the quality or characteristics of the wood itself uh, for this Diospyro Sumanatra. Um, but I'm sure that if you were hard-pressed, you could spend your time whittling it down into a, a sweet little, let's see, it wouldn't be a Louisville slugger here. It would be a uh, Indochina to Malaysian slugger. Yeah. It would still be a bat, and you could still probably hit a baseball with it. And I think, for that reason alone, since it'd be useful in the other avenue here, I'm going to go with its competitor to move on into round two. And so, so you're going with the stadium? Absolutely. I think, I think I'm going to agree with you, uh, if only for the fact that uh, the Diospiro Sumanatra, okay, a champion of trees, I think I think we can agree on that. It's a great tree. We could utilize it to become champions ourselves, but you know, truly, this Estado Francisco Montaner, uh, the home of champions of all sports and all types, um, including but not limited to uh, twelve championships, four in the BSN Basketball uh, League, uh, one in the AA Baseball in 1957, six in professional baseball in years that I won't name off, and including even one football championship in 2007. They have enough trophies, but the one that we know is going to mean the most to them is the one we're going to give them right now as we move them into round two. Absolutely. Can't wait to do so. Uh, champions you've held and champions we hold you as. Estado Francisco Montaner, you're moving on to the next round of... The Ultimate Tournament of Everything. Great job. Yeah, and a great start to this competition here. Uh, can't start with pretty much greater fireworks than that, especially if you'd lit that tree on fire, which we have no intention of doing. Um, let's move in to round two. It's time for round two. In round two, we have Angel Adams against Elgin. Okay, yes. Uh, two dare I say, angelic competitors here. Uh, holy amazing. As we uh, dive into them, we've got one, an associate professor of sociology, and the other, a South African thoroughbred horse racing jockey. Uh, let's see which one is going to be able to gallop on in to the next round. So by Elchin, I actually meant Muzi Yenin. Pronunciations are hard. So Muzi Yenin, Born December 6th, 1986 in Durban, is a South African thoroughbred horse racing jockey, and to date he has won numerous grade one races with 
1,788 career wins, which is a lot of them. That is a lot. Although, can you really give credit, all the credit to the jockey? I mean, the horse is doing all the work. Yeah, the horse is really doing all of the work, but I have to imagine that it'd be tough to give a medal to a horse who would rather just eat it. They do attach metal to the bottoms of their feet, though, but uh, they'll tell you it's for their own good. Now, this Muzi Yeni finished second in the 2018-19 SA Jockey Championships, uh, riding 215 winners, narrowly losing by three wins. Yeah, two, Lyle Hewitson. Don't sell Lyle short, even though he probably is. Yeni won his first race in the 12th start of his career, and he rode Storm King to victory for Mike to. De- uh, Mike to Cook at Clarewood in November 2003. Yes, he did. And uh, his first grade one victory came in the President's Championship Challenge over 2,000 meters at Turfontine uh, in April 2011. He rode a horse named Happy Landing to Victory, and he had a happy landing in the Victor's Circle, uh, which was a big outsider at 55 to 1. That, that is something I should go back in time and bet on if I ever have access to a time machine. So future self, you hear me? Future self, time machine, go bet on this racehorse. It seems as though you could have bet on many of this individual's races to win, um, but I'm not so sure yet if we can bet on him to win in this round. In the meantime, let's jump over to his competitor, Angel Adams Parham, the Associate Professor of Sociology at Loyola University, New Orleans, whose research addressed the intersection of identity, migration, race, and national belonging. Now, she received her B.A. in Sociology from Yale University in 1994, followed by an M.S. in Sociology from the University of Wisconsin-Madison in 1998, and then a Ph.D. in the same field, also in Madison, five years later. This is a smart lady. Smart and prestigious. She is an associate professor of sociology at Loyola University, New Orleans. Uh, She was a member of the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, New Jersey from 2011 to 12. And there she undertook research on the role of links between Louisiana and St. Domingue and Haiti in uh, relation to race. Now, she founded and directs the Nyanza Classical Community, an after-school program aimed at enabling African-American students of low-income and disadvantaged families in New Orleans. The program focuses on reading from classical mythology, Greek and Roman texts, and biblical stories, and is supported by the Society for Classical Studies and Tulane University. So she's brilliant at looking back, but she's also looking forward. Um, Her 2017 monograph, American Roots, Racial Palimpsests and the Transformation of Race, was the co-winner of the 2018 American Sociological Association's Barrington Moore Book Award in Comparative and Historical Sociology, uh, the co-winner of the 2018 Social Sciences History Association's Alan Sharlin Memorial Book Award, And it received honorable mention for the 2018 American Sociological Association's Tomic and Zaniaki Distinguished Book Award for International Migration. It sounds like this book won almost all the awards a sociological book could win in that year. So good job to her. That's a lot of wins, but it might be a couple hundred fewer than Muzi Yeni. And Muzieni won at, it seems, every level. For he rode for Team SA for the first time in the International Jockeys Challenge in 2010, where he subsequently won the Turfolo Tyne Leg, uh, representing Team SA in the Premier Gateway Challenge in Singapore in September of 2018 then. Yeah, it sounds like he's good at just about everything he's ever done, as long as everything he ever did in does includes riding a racehorse man just two really top-notch competitors both elite in their field both crossing the finish line multiple times at the front of the pack now it becomes difficult to pick which one of these is most deserving 
to move into round two of this tournament. Yes, it's truly a case of the immovable force versus the unstoppable object. Uh, but I believe that the one that rises high is the one with wings upon their back. And so I'm going to throw down my vote for our Angel Adams Parham. I'm going to have to agree with you. Well, Muzi Yeni, I'm sure, is a very fast man as long as he's riding an even faster horse. I don't think his accolades shine past Angel Adams Parham's. I don't think so. Uh, really, uh, he was kind of just dead weight for that horse who I imagine could have run faster than, uh, you know, with him off of him as if uh, then he had no person upon his back. So I'm going to say, Muzi Yeni, uh, you're out of this round on the horse you rode in on. And Angel Adams Parham, you are wholly moving on to the next round of... The Ultimate Tournament of Everything. Yeah, I guess I never thought about that. Like, how much faster is the horse without the jockey riding on top of them? Gotta be at least a little. I mean, I'm sure that it's it's a motivational thing more than anything, but positive motivation is more effective than negative, we find most of the time. And uh, so let's encourage ourselves into round three. Three. It's time for round three. In round three, we have Vermont Woods Studios against Rosh Pinna Wind Power Station. Okay, we have two things in this round that truly do produce. We've got, as you said, Vermont Woods Studio, a retailer of Vermont manufactured wood furniture versus Rosh Pinna Wind Power Station, a planned 40 milliwatt. Megawatt, probably. Megawatt. It's a big M. Mega milliwatt wind-powered plant in Namibia. Yeah, so Vermont Wood Studios, which I thought was going to be like Hollywood Studios, but it's not because they don't make movies. They make chairs. They were established in 2005, and the company markets and sells products online and from a showroom in Vernon, Vermont. A lot of good trees up there. Uh Known colloquially as VWS, they sell furniture from several independent Vermont woodworking businesses as well as from larger wholesale companies. They seek to promote Vermont's custom furniture industry by unifying marketing efforts for its producers. You're not going to believe this crossover that I'm going to bring up right now. The company was established in 2005 by Peggy Farabaugh and her husband Ken after Farabaugh lost her position at... Tulane University in the aftermath of flooding caused by Hurricane Katrina. Tulane came up a little a bit ago, so believe that or not. Faraba drew up the business plan for a $20,000 grant competition. She did not win, but implemented the plan anyway. This is a lady that competition was not going to keep down. The company took in approximately $800,000 in sales in 2010 and grew by 35% between 2012 and 2014. They're all about style, and uh, they haven't changed that at all. For the company's Vernon showroom is located in a circa 1790 farmhouse and former ski lodge, and it features artworks from Vermont artists. Uh, only the best that Vermont has to offer. Uh, the building's renovation used primarily local materials, financed in part through a $100,000 grant from Vermont's Working Lands Enterprise Fund, and their showroom features large windows looking out upon a forest intended to reflect the company's emphasis on using locally sourced woods. So if they have their say, that forest will be turned into uh, furniture. Yeah. There's nothing more locally sourced than the tree you turn into a chair, except maybe the wind you turn into electricity. Now, the Rosh Pinna Wind Power Station that we talked about in Namibia, the wind farm under development by the Namibia Power Corporation Limited and the Namibia Electricity Peristetal. I've never seen that word before in my life. Uh, the wind farm is intended to increase energy generation. And an environmental impact study by the consulting firm Envirodynamics has been ongoing since 2020 and will hopefully inform the management of this renewable energy project. Yeah, you got to know how you're doing to figure out where you're going. But before you do any of that, you want to figure out where you are. Are. And this power station would be located in the Spergabite National Park in the Ilkaras region near the Atlantic Ocean coast. 
of Namibia. Uh, Spergebite, Biet, uh, Tufkal National Park, is located approximately 702 kilometers or 436 miles southwest of Windhoek, which you would think would be the place to put a windmill, uh, but it was already occupied, for that is the capital and largest city of Namibia. Now, they're actually really forward-thinking with this plan. So according to Power Africa, as of December of 2021, Namibia has installed a capacity of 680 megawatts of power, and of, of that, 517 are generated from renewable sources. However, about 60% of the country's total energy consumption was imported, and they are looking to close that deficit and want to have at least 70% of their power generated from renewable resources by 2030. Yeah, their goal of uh, energy production may be 70%, but I can tell you that this power station is 100% owned by NAM Power, the national electricity utility, a uh, peristatal company that is also uh, developing this wind farm. In 2021, that pre-aforementioned NAM Power advertised for qualified engineering, procurement, and construction contractors uh, to submit bids to construct this powerful power station. Now, I guess our question is, while they have the power, who has the seats? And I think that's got to be Vermont Woods Studios. Probably a tie-in with Arby's coming up soon. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I mean, it does take a uh, an amount of power, an amount of energy uh, to create a- any beautiful piece of furniture, even if you're just going to, uh, you know, nail a couple things at 90 degree angles and call it a chair. Yeah. Yeah. But really, what would life be without things at 90 degree angles that we can sit upon? Because chairs are kind of great. They are. Um, and so are trees. And I got to say, in the end, Vermont Woods Studios, uh, Look, if they keep on going, eventually they will run out of woods, right? Including those outside of their window. I really hope they're planning to plant trees while they're also cutting them down for furniture. Because what good is a chair if you can't sit in the shade of a tree? It does not say. Uh, and you can certainly not you know, lose really anything. The wind keeps on blowing. And why couldn't you sit in the shade of a wind power station? I think they have a fence around them. I think that's probably why. They're probably true, and you might have birds, uh, damaged birds, raining down upon you. But nevertheless, I do believe that this Rashpina wind power station uh, is uh, sparking my heart, and I'd like to choose it as my selection to move on to the next round of... The Ultimate Tournament of Everything. I absolutely agree with you, because while furniture's nice... It's not as nice as having electricity or clean air or, I don't know, power. Yeah, and, uh, you know, there's nothing that puts me to sleep quite like the woof, 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 woof of a windmill farm. Yeah, is, is that, Alexa, please play windmill sounds. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, and you know what? I think that we will get... One more chance to hear those beautiful, dulcet, and rotating tones when we see this appear in the next round of the Ultimate Tournament of Everything. Ah, my round four is ready. In round four, we have Halem against Zimanaduado, the Silesian Viverio ship. I think I have. Oh, look at that. We're talking about, uh, I was wrong in my guess. Uh, let's see. Helm, we're talking about uh, the first LGBTQIA plus rights non-governmental organization in the Arab world founded in Beirut, Lebanon, uh, versus Simnuadoa uh, Silesian Viovodeship, uh, a village in the administrative district uh, located in a couple of other subdivisions in Poland. There's a lot of words that are going to be in these articles that I will not be able to pronounce, so I am apologizing ahead of time, but we'll certainly try. So the mission of Halem, that's what I can pronounce, is to lead nonviolent struggle for the liberation of the groups Mike mentioned earlier. Now, the name was also an acronym in Arabic that stood for the Lebanese Protection for the LGBT Community, and then it is written there in Arabic, and I don't even know how I would begin pronouncing any of those characters. 
with education and cultural sensitivity. That's probably um, it. Yeah, but that also takes time and devotion, and uh, we're working on it. Uh, speaking of working, uh, this Halem runs various programs and advocacy programs that provide a wide range of services to the members of the LGBTQIA plus community in Lebanon, including emergency response, case management, legal assistance, social support, family support, mental health support, and it also runs the largest non-commercial queer space for the MENA region through its community center and prioritizes decriminalization, labor rights, housing, uh, hate speech, and economic empowerment as advocacy priorities. Now, all of this was started thanks to a chat page on Yahoo Chats called Gay Lebanon, where they talked about these issues and found places to meet both online and in person to further advance their advocacy. They even staged a boycott targeting Beirut branches of Dunkin' Donuts because apparently the Dunkin' Donuts refused to serve people that were gay or gay-looking, asking them to leave. The boycott was significant as it was the first recorded incident of its kind to target a private institution in this region and hold it accountable for discrimination. Uh, indeed, another milestone for the group was in February of 2003 when Halem activists took place in a global protests against the American invasion of Iraq, uh, raising the pride flag as part of a 10,000-person strong protest in Beirut, uh, which has come up a couple times before in this ultimate tournament of everything. And this protest marked the first time on record that a rainbow flag had been raised on Arab soil. It's kind of interesting that they would raise it during that issue in particular because, like, the U.S. invasion in Iraq, I don't know, I feel like the dictatorship was probably against some of those things. Uh, against every single one of those things. Um, but uh, times are tough, and uh, so were those people, uh, it seems. Uh, speaking of tough people, let's see if our other competitor is going to be full of those four. Uh, Zimnoada Silician Voivodeship is a village in the administrative district of Gmina Lipe within Klobuk County, Silician Voivodeship in southern Poland. Now, it's approximately 6 kilometers west of Lepe, 19 kilometers northwest of Klobuk, and 86 kilometers north of the regional capital of Katowice. Mm. Katowice, maybe? Who knows? It's in Polish. The village has a population of 565 people, but it does not yet tell me how many of those people are grouped into how many families. Uh, yeah, I mean, the nuclear family, you could do a, a division here, but we're trying to keep nukes out of that whole area, including during the German invasion of Poland, which started World War II on September 2nd, 1939, whence the Germans murdered 38 Polish inhabitants, including 10 children. Guys, Nazis are bad. Nazis right? are bad. Nazis are bad. I, we keep having to say this. Nazis are bad. Unfortunately, they've had a uh, very significant effect on the history of this world, and so they keep coming up. But let's learn from our mistakes and not uh, you know, be the Nazis of the future. I think that's kind of the point. Um, and I kind of think that that's what our uh, other competitor, Helem, is saying. You know, uh, Let's all get along. Let's all just uh, learn to love and uh, accept one another. And they've continued to do so through the years. Um, I'm not sure where uh, this place in Poland stands and all of that. Um, but this group seems to be uh, doing all that they can to stand tall despite oppression. Yeah. It's, you know, we could keep talking about that place in Poland, but we've really said all there is to say about it. Uh, truly, we have. Uh, however, there is no end uh, to what can be said about this uh, other group, Helem, for they are continuing their efforts uh, to be a... It continues now to be a, 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 with their goal to be a safe space and source of aid for the LGBTQ and uh, extended community there in Lebanon and I'm sure beyond. Uh, they've got studies and publications that they've been releasing and uh, their recognition and impact uh, continues to be recognized. Yeah, and I, I think that this is a pretty easy pick here about who we're going to move on. One, there's just way more information about one of them, and the other one is just a small village in Poland. Yeah. Uh, now, hey, there's nothing wrong with being a small village, uh, but, you know, a, a big part of that is knowing 
who you are and what you are and being accepted for that. And I think that uh, Helen would agree with that entirely. Uh, be who you are and all of that. Uh, Helen, you're moving on to the next round of The Ultimate Tournament of Everything. Sorry, Poland. Yeah, well, hey, we love you for just exactly who you are. Um, but what you are not is a winner in this round. Uh, so let's see who's going to be a winner in the next round. Round five. Um, five. Round five. Round five. Round five, we have the 1988 CONCACAF Pre-Olympic Tournament against the Maddening. Yeah, okay. Uh, two things that'll just drive you crazy. The uh, 1988 acronym pre-Olympic tournament, uh, tournament, you know, preceding the Olympics, competition for competition versus the maddening uh, psychological thriller film, uh, which might make your mind compete with itself. Let's see which one is going to be able to blow their way into the next round. The 1988 CONCACAF Pre-Olympic Tournament was the seventh edition of the CONCACAF Pre-Olympic Tournament. This quadrennial international football, meaning soccer, tournament is organized by the CONCACAF to determine which national teams from the North, Central America, and Caribbean region qualify for the Olympic football tournament. And I have a feeling that's what CONCACAF encompasses. Yeah, um, and for the sake of our own selves, I think we should just refer to it as the Big C. Uh, now, United States and Guatemala qualified for the 1988 Summer Olympics. Uh, Mexico had originally qualified, but they were ultimately disqualified by FIFA and uh, a Kachi Rules uh, scandal. I don't know about that. Let's see. It was a scandal associated uh, where the Mexican Football Federation was found to have knowingly used at least four overage players. Okay, well, you can't break the rules. Um, that's that's rule number one, is don't break the rules, and then they tell you the, the, the rest of them. You can buy beer, but you can't play soccer. That's the rule, apparently. You can buy beer, but you can't play soccer. You're too old. Sorry, buddy. Yeah, all that beer doesn't make for a good soccer player anyways. Uh, so, basically, as we look down here in the final round, it looks like the United States did take first place and qualified to go on to the 1998 Summer Olympics. Uh, not exactly sure how they fared there, but at least they got their fare paid for to go to said event. Um, in Group B, though, looks like... Yep, Mexico would have taken first place, but they were disqualified. And so the honor went to Guatemala, who qualified to proceed on to those pre-aforementioned 1998 Summer Olympics. We were number one. We were number one. And actually, Brent Goulet scored six goals. He was the top scorer. He was also number one. Was he number one? What, what, what was on his jersey? Oh, that's a great question. Brent Goulet doesn't say. Hmm. Ah, it's a beautiful rhyme. But I think it's time to jump over to our other competitor, The Maddening, the 1995 psychological thriller film directed by Danny Hudson and based on a novel by Andrew Niederman. This was a direct-to-video creep fest featuring Burt Reynolds and Angie Dickinson, both names I know. So a young couple, Cassie and David Osborne, have an intense argument as he spends too much time on business trips the next morning, he goes to work, and Cassie takes their five-year-old daughter, Samantha, to stay with her sister, Joanne, for a few days, having car trouble, as always happens in creepy movies. They stop at a seedy-looking gas station where they are tended to by Roy Scudder, the owner. Instead of helping the mother and child, Scudder rigs the vehicle to break down a short distance down the road, then drives down the road and offers to tow them back to his place. It only gets worse from here. Indeed. And things hadn't been good up to that point for, uh, looks like Cassie meets Roy's insane wife, Georgina, who's been out of sorts since the mysterious death of her baby boy. And uh, Samantha is made to be a playmate for the Scudder's daughter, Jill, uh, who appears to be as unstable as her mother. Things just continue to degrade as Joanne panics. Uh, they're placed into some sort of captivity. Oh, golly, things are not good. Don't want to spoil it all for you, but um, 
Looks like uh, Burt Reynolds got into some real uh, trouble here. Yeah. Oh, no. Burt Reynolds was the problem. He was Roy Scudder. Oh, <laughs> sorry, Burt. Uh, you're the bad guy, Burt. Too hate, true. Had to break it to you, Burt. I think he was aware. He probably had the script before we did. Um, man, uh, yeah, it's a movie. It's uh, you know, it's winter. It's om- It happens to be. I don't know when you're listening to this, but when we're recording it, it's almost Halloween time. So this sounds like a movie that might be appropriate for that. You know, for this present period. Um, I don't think I've ever heard of it though. Yeah, I don't think I've ever heard of it either because it probably. I mean direct to video so it didn't even make it to tv it's just like hey we're gonna put out a vhs tape and hope people buy it because it has burt reynolds on the cover we all do love a good mustache um and it's good enough to see if a movie is good uh five bucks at the store probably get you a double feature including this one um looks like they're hunted at some point through swamps by roy Bert, who carries a shotgun, but uh, somebody is able to successfully hide underwater in the swamps and then make a run back to the house when Roy finds Arthur's open grave and collapses in grief. It just goes on. This is craziness happening, uh, as only a direct-to-video movie could bring you. So I guess the question for this round is, do we want to move on the creepy video mustache or the teams that couldn't grow mustaches because they were not old enough? Yeah, um... Honestly, I think that uh, while for most people this 1988 C-O-N-C-A-C-A-F pre-Olympic tournament was tragic for only one team can win, um, I think that the more, the what I'd like to revisit would, would honestly be this movie. Uh, you know, for what it was, it sounds pretty crazy. Um, oh my goodness, uh, there's a lot of people that don't make it to the end of the film and uh shoot hey tis the season hey we're uh we're about to halloween i think i'm gonna throw my gauntlet down for the maddening well it is the spooky season so we may as well go with the spooky movie the ultimate tournament of everything that round was scary good rob nah yeah it was great but i must ask you are you ready for round six? <laughs> you burnt your bottom dollar. Making a turn around the curve. He comes, he comes around the last second. There you have it. There is your winner. Round six. In round six, we have Tayutin against Evald Arma. We truly do. Uh, Rob is not kidding you. Uh, Tayutin, a Russian surname, um, last name, if you will, uh, versus Evald Arma, uh, this individual's full name. This individual also was an Estonian pole vaulter. Let's see which one is going to be able to raise the bar and go on to the next round. Tayutin, the Russian surname, includes notable people such as Igor Tayutin, the Russian theoretical physicist, and Fedor Tayutin, the Russian hockey player. And that's about all we know. Um, it's spelled T-Y-U-T-I-N. Um, I always like it when, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it looks cool spelled out. I'm going to, you know, at least throw that out there for it. Um, we don't have anybody else named f- under that uh, last name. We don't have a definition for it or anything like that. I can tell you that this Igor Tiutin uh, was a Russian theoretical physicist who worked on quantum field theory, so that's pretty cool. Um, but that's about all I can tell you. Yeah, now while there might be two people with that name, there's probably more with this other name. Evald Arma, who apparently until 1936 went by Arman was an Estonian pole vaulter who complete who competed at the 1934 European Championships and the 1936 Summer Olympics, placed 7th and then 26th. So he got a little worse once he met worldwide competition. But don't let that fool you. The man was a great guy and also a veterinarian. Yeah, he cared not only about uh, the, the height that he could individually reach, but he cared about uh, you know, the length that, uh, of life that animals could reach. 
He studied veterinarian medicine at the University of Tartu from 1937 to 39, and then at the University of Helsinki. Um, he took up pole vaulting, though, in 1927 and won the Estonian title in 1936 and 37. Uh, so it took him a while to get uh, everything under him, but eventually when he was crushing it on the pole vault, just about everything was, including that pole which he was vaulting. Yeah, except unfortunately, sometimes the bar was also under him, and by under him, I mean he fell on top of it, hence placing 26th. He did. Um, And he knew when to get out of there, because when in 1944 the Soviet army entered Estonia, he fled to the United States, where he then worked as a veterinary doctor. So, you know, uh, it's when you're pole vaulting, You want to go over the pole and then fall on your back. Uh, But even still, all the while, it's also good to have a fallback. And it seems as though uh, veterinarianism was his fallback, which came through very handy when he had to flee uh, World War II. Yeah, I, I think, well, even though he did flee, that was the smart move. He made it to America. He helped some animals. He made a good life for himself. And I don't know about the life of Igor or Fetter. Probably great, I would assume, but we don't know because the article only mentions, and we can't really click on the next one because we're not comparing those articles. We're comparing just this one. Absolutely. And a Russian theoretical physicist born in 1940, well, I guess he would have probably gotten all smartened up about quantum physics uh, after the war was completed, so he probably didn't have anything contributing to that which Evald was running from. Uh... But we do know that Evald could run and jump and utilize physics himself to get over the bar. And I think that's exactly what he's done here in this round. Evald Arma, I'd like to choose you as my selection and move on to the next round of... The Ultimate Tournament Evald, you definitely cleared this bar that is round six to make it into round two. Yes, uh, that's how math works at the quantum state. Uh, We don't exactly understand it all, but we know that that man did. Uh, So let's see which incomprehensible equation will move us on to the next round. Round seven. Round seven. Round seven. In round seven, we have 48th Meridian West. Against Iswar Chandra Vidyasagar College. We have, uh, yes, indeed, uh, a line of longitude, the 48th Meridian West, extending from the North Pole to the Arctic Ocean uh, versus Iswar Chandra Vidyasagar College, uh, which I'm sure has its own extensive reach of education and knowledge. Let's see which one is going to be able to uh, be smart enough to get into the next round. Now, as everyone knows, the 48th Meridian forms the Great Circle with the 132nd Meridian East. And there's even a map indexing scheme of Canada's national topographic system that begins in the east at the 48th Meridian West. So this is a line that goes pole to pole right through Greenland, down through parts of South America, straight to the South Pole. It passes through lots of things, the Arctic Ocean, the Lincoln Sea, Greenland, Victoria Fjord, the Atlantic Ocean parts of Brazil, even parts of Antarctica. Yeah, this uh, this line has seen a lot of the world. And, it, you know, uh, the longitudinal uh, system is something certainly that we have applied upon the Earth, but it's something that has helped us understand, uh, you know, where we are and how things work. This is certainly, I'm sure, a very significant individual portion of it, but, uh, you know, a globe is made up of an infinite amount of lines, and so I think that if the globe was going to be a podcast, perhaps this uh, longitudinal line would be uh, just one episode, such as the one you're presently listening to. Now, while this line is fine, I don't know if it's as nice as Iswar Chandra Vidyasagar College also formerly known as Bologna College. Established in 1964, it is one of the oldest colleges in South Tripura, offers undergraduate courses in arts, commerce, and science, and is affiliated with Tripura University. They even list here 
their latitude and longitude. They are 23.243 degrees north and 91.474 degrees east. So would that put it about a quarter? I I don't know how uh, coordinates like that work, but it would be like a quarter of the world away from uh, our other competitor? Probably something like that, but someone will definitely correct us if we're wrong. And I hope that you do, and you can do so by commenting or uh, sending us blasts or audio things through uh, Anchor FM. You can also find us on Facebook with the Ultimate Tournament of Everything podcast Facebook group. Please check it out and let us know in every manner in which we've aired, uh, as do, I'm sure, the teachers here at the Iswar Chandra Vriyasagara College. Uh, now, if you want to go and study and learn up on any number of departments, uh, subjects, you can certainly do so here, including chemistry, physics, mathematics, stats, botany, zoology, physiology. Uh, they've got arts and all sorts of languages, history, geography. It goes on and on. And they have a prestigious and a lengthy list of faculty and alumni. Yeah, there are a lot of people who have been associated with this group, like Dr. Rusan Ali, Dr. Kuldeep Gusai, Dr. Oh, I can't pronounce that name. Let's go with Amit Tripura because I can pronounce that one. Lots and lots of very smart people involved in this college, probably like lots of smart people that decided we needed to divide the earth up into 360 individual lines. Too true. Uh, but perhaps the 48th Meridian West is one of the more significant. Uh, don't really know, and I would figure that they'd all be equal, actually, on some scale. That scale being 1 to 360. Uh, but I also don't know that for sure because, as I mentioned, I'm not sure how uh, you know coordinates and all of this longitude-latitude stuff work. All of those people in that list from the school are certainly smarter than I. However, our knowledge must coalesce into a decision here, Rob. So how you feeling? I think I have to go with the university because if we move them on, there's a chance I might get smarter in round two when they come up again. Whereas if we move on the 48th meridian, I'll still just go, oh, hey, it's a line. It is a line, but, uh, you know, a line is made up of an infinite amount of points. And so <laughs> it's tough to score more than infinity points. Uh, so I think that honestly, I'm going to have to go with the 48th Meridian West. Well, you then know what it's time for. Time for a tiebreaker. As everyone knows, we settle tiebreakers here by seeing who can go grab the thing they're thinking of the fastest. I'm going to go to this college, grab a book, bring it back. You're going to try and wrangle the 48th Meridian. Yeah, most of it's going through water, and to be frank, I'm not that good of a swimmer. So can we just uh, pick a number between 1 and 10,000? Absolutely we can. So hmm. I'm going to go with the number 1964. Ah, that's a good number, a strong number. I'm going to go with 7,232 uh, for the 72 degrees, uh, 32 feet south, uh, which is the location in Antarctica, which was claimed by both Argentina and the United Kingdom. Well, we'll see how well that number suits you. We're going to generate our random number in just a moment, number between 1 and 10,000, and our number is 1,000. 311. Which means that Iswar Chandra Vidyasagara College, uh, you've graduated in to the next round of The Ultimate You can't keep a college down, but somebody's really hurting the sound effects. Yeah, uh, well, I think that uh, to any, uh, whether it be G, you know, GPS or uh statistical degree uh that college certainly earned itself a master's degree in that round so let's see who's going to graduate into the next round round eight i say would you by chance have any round eight round eight in round eight we have bayor the region against sarab a dalkal which is a village. 
And it may not surprise you to know that it is a small village in Iran, which gives it a huge advantage. Let's see if the Bihor region in uh, Montenegro, situated by Jacoche, uh, can rise above, uh, despite it being a uh, an underdog here. So let's see if it's got what it takes. I don't know if it does, but I'll come at it with an open mind. So this is northwest of Lepore. The region is within three municipalities, Barene, Biole, Pole, and Peinijica. It's named after Bihor, a formal medieval town that was near Bihalo, Pole. The region mainly consists of ethnic Bosniaks, and there is an upper and a lower. And upper Bihole, or upper Bihor is located in southwestern Zanzac in the northeastern of Montenegro. It has an area of about 143 kilometers squared, and an elevation of about 922 meters, or 3,025 freedom feet. And within that relatively small area, it has a variety of types of terrain. There are high mountains, there are river valleys, uh, there are glacial and karst relief, and there are even volcanic mountains. Uh, see, in 1878, Bihor became part of Montenegro. Uh, after the Balkan Wars and the fall of the Ottoman Empire, heavy pressure uh, leads to the Muslims from the Bihor moving to Bosnia and Herzegovina, Kosovo, and Turkey. In 1914, a few thousand people from Bihor moved to Turkey, while the Eastern Orthodoxy followers begin moving in from various parts of Montenegro. Now, it seems like we can't get through an episode without talking about some of the evils and horrors of World War II, so mm. here we go again. During the Second World War, Chetnik forces based in Montenegro conducted a series of ethnic cleansing operations against Muslims in the Bihor region. And in May of 1943, an estimated 5,400 Albanian men, women, and children were massacred by Chetnik forces under Pavle Durisic. Uh, the notables of the region then published a memorandum and declared themselves to be Albanians. There's, it's just not great, guys. Uh, World War II is awful. It truly was. It's, it's terrors know no end, and we only continue to unearth them. Um, however, to this day... There are, uh, it appears, 73 surnames that uh, have lived on of villagers found in Upper Bihor. And I'm not going to name them all, but there they are. There are also towns, uh, multiply named, beautifully named. Uh, if you visit this article, you can read them all. Our next challenger, Sarab A. Daukal, of course, our small village in Iran, the heavy hitter that we know of, village in the Cis Rural District, in the Balbanabab District, in the Dilhogan County, in the Kurdistan Province. And as of the 2006 census, its population was 136 people in our favorite statistic of 32 families. Indeed. Uh, now, this village is populated by Kurds. Um, 32 families worth of them, um, only a population of 136. Wowza. Um, unfortunately, that's all that we know as we're looking at the nation of, of Iran. We've found villages uh, placed, dotted all over the place. Uh, this is far towards the west, uh, almost toward the border, uh, but not quite. Uh, it's it's not uh, towards the top too far, not towards the bottom too far, but it is leaning towards the northern realm of it. Um, yeah, I wish there was pictures and more information, but there certainly is a proliferation of these articles regarding small little towns in Iran. We are literally comparing anything that ever was, and I would say nearly every episode we have a small village in Iran show up and show us that it is a thing that was once and will forever be. Too true. You cannot keep a good town down, uh, especially when you got 32 proud families standing there. However, looking at the fact that there are 73 surnames in our uh, Bihor region, I would guess that, I mean, there's at least 73 families, right? And there's got to be subdivisions there in a whole bunch of towns here. Uh, population made up of uh, mostly Muslim Bosniaks with a minority of Serbian Orthodox followers. Uh, this is probably a larger and more significant uh, portion of the earth and, uh, you know, mankind, dare one say? Yeah, this is a rare time when a small village in Iran 
is probably going to lose. Yeah. Uh, you know, we all must lose something sometimes, and it seems as though this uh, Bihor region has lost more than its fair share. And so that's why I think it's time that we give them something, and uh, perhaps that should be a victory in this round of the Ultimate Tournament of Everything. It won't mean much, but it's all we got. The Ultimate Tournament of Everything. Wouldn't it be cool if there was a way that we could fix the past? Yeah, that'd be great. So if any of you out there know how to assemble a time machine, please contact us. And you can do so on our Facebook group. You can do so through Anchor FM. And uh, if you just want to let us know that you're here in this present moment with us, uh, don't forget to rate, comment, subscribe, tell your friends, and join us tomorrow. Uh, for a, you know We have an episode every single day. So whenever you're listening to this, tomorrow there will be another one for the world keeps on spinning, time keeps on slipping, and... We find ourselves moving on to round nine. It's about time for round nine. Round nine. In round nine, we have a crazy year in history. The ninth, the sorry, eighteen thirty-eight year in birding and ornithology against the Canton of Pont d'Ain. Yeah, and uh, this Canton of Pontain ain't no schluff. However, we'll have to see how it compares to this fantastic year in birding and ornithology. I'm sure there was a lot of exciting things flying around in the minds of those who this was important to. Let's see which one is going to uh, be able to not lay an egg and move on to the next round of the Ultimate Tournament of Everything. In this year, Andrew Smith began production of illustrations of the zoology of South Africa, they published a, another book about birds that's in French. A ornithologist named Johann Gottlieb Fleischer passed away, as did Anselm Gaetan Desmaret. The foundation of the Royal Zoological Museum of Amsterdam was that year. There's just a lot of really interesting things that apparently happened in the year 1838 all around birds. Yeah, uh, they were they were flying high. Uh, there were some ongoing events where William Jardine and Prideau John Selby, uh, with the cooperation of James Ebenezer Bicheno, uh, they, they published illustrations of ornithology uh, with various publishers. Four volumes of such. Um, looks like it started in 1825 and uh, continued on th from 1836 to 45. So it must have included this wonderful year of 1838, although issues partly in connection with a volume of plates under the same title, uh, text and plates uh, were purchasable separately. Uh, okay, so pretty much what we're saying here is this was a period of time where a lot of people were interested in birds and uh, the study of birds and books about birds, and uh, they no longer stated that birds were something that was for the birds. Yeah, some people just really love birds, and if you're one of those people, congratulations. I don't know the difference between a hawk or a kite or a kestrel, but I'm sure you do, and I'm sure these people did. And I also don't know the difference between a canton or an administrative district in France, which is apparently what a canton is. Yes, they are one in the same. Um... I was going to come up with some sort of bird analogy, but I also don't know enough about birds uh, quite yet. We're getting through infinity, and we're learning that we're learning a lot of things as we do so. So we hope that you have the same sentiment. However, let's focus on this Canton de Pontdain. Um, at the French Canton reorganization, which came into effect in March 2015, this Canton expanded, okay? It spread its wings, if you will, from 11 to 24 communes has an area of 119 square miles, a population density of about, oh, what does that say, 72 people per kilometer. Not a lot of people, so apparently a lot of room out there, and a population of 21,997. As of 2018, that number's probably up since then. Yeah, but it's uh, probably not terribly too much, for we can see from 2013 it was 21,400. 
410. So it only grew about 500 people in five years. If we extrapolate that to now, maybe throw on a little inflation, we're still in the 22,000 region. Um, you know, for an area of 119 square miles, uh, depending on where you are, that might not be too many. However, I imagine that the bird population within that space may easily exceed that of the people's. Yeah, I think the birds are going to win this one because this round is going to the birds. It is indeed. Um, and it's nigh time that we fly high out of here, but we've got to make a decision before we do so. Uh, however, I got to say, we really don't know much about either of these that is processable or conveyable. No, we don't. But a man did publish a book called The Duck Tribe, and I think that's enough for me. Mm, if you, I would love to be part of that tribe. Um, ducks fly together, as they say. Uh, geese fly in a V, but I think that if ducks were to fly in a V in this case, that V might stand for victory. The We've done it. We've made it to the end of 18 things being compared against each other for nine rounds of the most interesting content you've probably heard today. At least in the past 42 to 59 minutes. Uh, we'll have to see how it turns out. And we're glad that you joined us. We hope that you do so again and once more. You can join us every single day. As Rob so eloquently stated earlier, any day beginning in a T, you can find a full-length episode such as this. 18 competitors, 9 rounds, only 9 victors. So, that by math means 9 non-victors. Not going to call them losers, uh, because you never know if they would have faced off against someone else. That is the nature of infinity. But every other day, the rest of the days, ending in Y, uh, you can find a scouting report. That's right, where we compare not 19 or 18, which would be the correct number, but just one. We look at one competitor and give them all their due. And if you liked any of that, make sure to find us on podcast apps, subscribe to the channel, show, show. It's a show, right? This is uh, a show that shows up every single day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Don't forget to meet us on the Triple T's, the Tuesdays and Thursdays for the tournament, and we'll make sure to find you at the next one. The ultimate tournament.